So hello, happy listeners. My name is George Hodson. I'm the wonderful age of 72. I'm an out, proud, loud, gay, queer, sodomite fairy. I would describe my tribe as the radical fairies because I was a hippie and lived in San Francisco for two years. And that's what really formed me those days. And I'm still proud to hold on to those values of peace, love, and all those kind of wonderful things that are so out of fashion at the moment. Today, although I'm 72, I want to be 17, and I'm going to be 17 again. I'm going to push back all those years and go back to my school, which was a boarding school, a place where I started to learn what surviving the patriarchy really meant. And as we all know, patriarchy is a devil in disguise. And here was a mini version of the patriarchy where one learned how to survive. And I really was quite good at it. And I learned all the tricks of the trade to keep myself away from the negative stigma and bullying. And like all things, even patriarchy has a little bit of benefit in it. And I picked up one or two cues that have helped me an awful lot in life from having had this privileged public school education. I was always effeminate, but not overtly camp, and quite tall and pretty, and I used that. I was the fag, what a dreadful word, a sort of slave to one of the power brokers and influencers in the patriarchy, so that helped me. What I wanted to tell today was a, a love story, a rather special love story that happened to me within this like closeted, closed community. Because I'd been a good boy and worked my way up the pole, I'd been given this little room, which was like a study, where it was the only really private part in this communal living. And it was meant to be for two people, and I was in it on my own. Then one day there was a knock on the door, and in came this most gorgeous, like, Australian surfer boy. It was good day, mate. And he'd been sent, as a lot of people had to be, what this dreadful word, finished to get the public school veneer. And he was called Scott. And I thought, oh, fuck this. I I don't want to share my room with someone, you know. But something deep inside said me, hmm, this could be quite fun sharing a room with someone who was the complete opposite to me, being this sort of languid sort of English queen and this sort of rough, tough, basically surfer boy. So... I thought, okay, so he moved in with me and we slowly just sort of got to appreciate each other and support each other because I did arts, he did science. So we sort of complimented each other and I had to take him under my wing because he hadn't had all the years of experience of how to work this dreadful patriarchal system and was obviously going to be very vulnerable to the bullies and the dickheads and that. So I thought, yeah, I'll I'll be your friend. I'll I'll make sure that the influence and power that I've got, I will share with you. He, in turn, taught me how to be more physical. He taught me how to play tennis, which I'd never played tennis before. And I became an absolute wizard at it, you know. And he taught me how to be a good swimmer. I'd always just sort of kicked about and squeaked and looked underwater at the men in their trunks and thought, I must get hold of that one one night. And so... 
we we just sort of complimented each other for the first two or three months. And then there was this day where we were just malarking about and we got into this sort of little play fight. And he just suddenly, he pinned me down because he was much stronger than me and I quite like being pinned down. And he kissed me. And it was like fireworks. I'd... I'd sucked cocks, I'd done all that in the dormitories, but I'd never kissed another boy. And it was like an electric shock. It just went straight through me that I realised that this was something incredibly important for me and was releasing within me a whole new side of myself that I kind of knew was there, but didn't know quite how and where to express it. And we then both suddenly realised that we, we had full erections and that as we were fighting, like frottage, we came. And we just, I think it was a, sh- a shock for him as much as me. And we just sort of looked at each other and realised that this was the beginning of a, a love affair, a relationship. At 16, in this little room that we had to ourselves, in a safe environment where... It was closeted and closed. And for the next two years, we had a completely full-on relationship. It added another layer to our friendship. And it was really my coming out. And I, I know so many people have such dreadful coming out experiences. But this was kind of almost like a Disney-esque coming out. You know, surfer boy kisses <laughs> a feminine queen. And and it was just happened. and. It was one of the most glorious experiences of my life. So we we got on with life. We did our studies and, you know, in the school, a lot of it was going on. A lot of people had kind of relationships. It wasn't really talked about. It was just part of the male-only system. And then we were reported to the headmaster by some nasty little snitch, you know, who couldn't get any cock to... <laughs> You know, they saw us having a lovely time somewhere and we were brought into the headmaster. Scott's father was gay himself and he was a pilot with Middle East Airline and lived in Lebanon. My parents were the most shitty, phobic, drunken, vile people that you could imagine. You know, it was the end of the world for them. They threatened to take me away from the school and everything. So, But I was pleased because I loathed them so much and they stopped me from being able to express myself for so many years that everything they stood for I wanted to undo and this was one of the things because they'd sit of an evening with their gin talking about queers and they were a loathsome couple so I was quite pleased to actually prove them right that they always said I was a sissy and that I was having a lovely time being a sissy so the first summer Instead of going back to stay with them, Scott and I flew out to Beirut to live with his father in his flat, which was just beautiful. This was before Lebanon sadly collapsed. It was called like the Paris of the Middle East, and it was elegant, wonderful. And we were these two young gay men, and we'd get taken out to dinner by these lovely, rich old Arabs, and had just a lovely, lovely time. This was the first time that Scott fucked me, and it was in... It's hot, hot heat under a a mosquito net. And we didn't know about lubrication and everything. So we got butter (laughs) and lit candles. And um, we didn't quite know who was going to do whom. But I felt I was always the one that wanted to be fucked. 
and he felt he was the one that wanted to fuck. So he sort of played about with the butter. And then he, he fucked me. I don't think I've ever squealed so much in absolute pleasure. But this was what another step in our relationship and the pure physical pleasure of being fucked and being loved at the same time and the newness of it and a mutual orgasm. And I don't think, as I said, I've ever squealed and screamed with absolute pleasure and just that shivering body experience of your first fuck. And it was magic in this wonderful sort of exotic environment. And the next day we went and visited some old Roman ruins And we'd nip behind these Roman collars and have a quick snog. You know, it was just another development of the first love and my first coming out. So eventually we we got our grades and I got offered a place at Goldsmiths and he got offered a place at UCL to do chemistry and I was doing the arts. And then my fuckwit parents said that if... I didn't come back and do another year to do Oxford and Cambridge entry. They weren't going to pay my fees because in those days they had quite a lot of money. Part of the fee had to be paid by your parents. And the school was saying I had to come back or needed to come back to Oxford. So I stuck a finger up and we ran off to London together and got this flat. But then things changed. Scott discovered Lady Gardens and women and not left me, but pursued that avenue of sexuality, which was okay. I didn't grieve that. I was appreciative of the two years we'd had and what I'd learned about love and relationships and sex. So I I was sort of left on my own to start living my solo queer life. The problem was that I had no money. So I decided there was two things I was going to do. The first thing was I've always had a very good eye for beautiful little objects and things. So what I used to do is I'd go up to Brick Lane, which in those days was undiscovered. And there was this wonderful Jamaican woman who'd sit at the doorway into this like old barn. Inside, she had this mountain of the most beautiful old beaded 20s dresses, chiffon dresses, Bieber originals. God knows where she got them from, but no one else knew about her. So I'd go picking through and find these incredible old vintage dresses. And and then I'd take them up to my friend Sharon, who had this little shop in Covent Garden, and flog them for a fortune. And, you know, the old lady would say, Ah, Jesus loves you. You can have them for five pounds. And I had about 500 pounds worth of frocks, you know, even in those days. So I made quite a lot of money that way. And one day I was down, bending over, picking through the rubbish. And I heard this voice saying, Oh, bona lallies, shame about the eat, which was the old Polari. <laughs> and I looked round, and there was this incredible man standing there. He was in an old fur coat. He had a sort of red head of hair, this big round sort of baby face. He was the fur man while I was the chiffon. He was doing the same thing, making money. So we went and had a bagel, which was all everyone did in Brick Lane in those days. And he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm at university. And he said, oh, the only thing I ever learnt from my mum was how to dip, how to pick a pocket. (laughs) Something inside me said, I've been such a good boy all my life. You know, I've always been top of the class. I've done what I was told to do. I was a prefect. I've been a really bit of a goody-goody. And I knew inside that there was a part of me that would really want to be quite badass, you know, that I'd never yet had an opportunity to express. And suddenly I thought, 
I knew this man. He said, oh, I'm in and out of prison, dear, with picking things up. I get shoplifted. I thought, oh, that sounds really exciting, you know. And I, so I said, Let, let's be friends. So he took me back to his flat and he had this incredibly beautiful flat in Dover Street all with sort of beautiful antiques and that. And I said, Dougie, how the hell did you make all that? He said, oh, I'm a, I'm a prostitute. I, I work, I've, I've got clients. He said, would you like to do it? And I thought, yes, <laughs> I really would if I can get a flat like this. So I then became not, yeah, I was a prostitute, but a, an escort, really, because in the late 70s, there was a scene. There was the Dilly Boys down the Dilly, which everyone knows about. And I must say, even in those days, there was talk of a horrible gang going around who were murdering and all that. There was that marketplace, which was for young, rough, tough boys. In Shepherd's Market, the girls worked. And then there was a very small group of us who worked in a street called Half Moon Street, this tiny little road. And we were all mainly public school boys. We were people that could hold a conversation and that older men would come for to take out for the evening, to show off, to have dinner with, to go to the theatre with. And that was our sort of speciality. So I found myself standing on Half Moon Street dressed in sort of schoolboy cap and uh, shorts and Dougie was on the other side of the road and I started working with people that he'd already known so they were clients of his I I'm not promoting prostitution or sex work but for me it was something that I did and enjoyed and I think because the clients that I was dealing with were very elderly I never ever felt unsafe here yeah? because it was either people who were introduced to me through other people or if it was a new client we'd take the car numbers and the cars would come down they were usually chauffeur driven you know Bentleys there were these wonderful older very elderly sometimes men who just wanted company who wanted someone who could talk with them take them to the theatre and I learned just so much from these old men about politics and life how to fill it up over soul on the plate what wines to drink with and it was a great joy to do it and i built up regular clients and i only did it for nine months and in nine months i earned enough money to put me through three years of university i very rarely had to have full sex with any of them it was dinner conversations going to the rockingham club where all these old gentlemen would appear with their latest boys and they would all be competing with each other and you know it's all, look at what I've got tonight dear you know and it was a strange little subset world I can remember one night one guy stopping in the chauffeur driven roles and I got in and he said to me before we go any further I want you to know I'll give you extra because I'm an amputee and being a tart with a very good heart I said I'll give you a discount lovely and we went off and had dinner and, you know, an amputee. If, if you're working in sex, what does it matter, you know? But And I used to use my tongue. I'd talk dirty. They came quick. They really weren't demanding sexually, you know. It was, they just wanted company and to come, you know, in their own way. A lot of it was self-masturbation. I'm quite a good dancer. I'd do a nice strip tease for them um, and... 
it was quite easy. My subset of clients were rich Arabs who'd come from Beirut when Beirut collapsed. Now, they were a different kettle of fish because they were really horny bastards, yeah. And one of the sexiest things I've ever seen was going to a hotel with an Arab, and he had, I don't know what they call, like, the white robe. I, I don't know what it's called, but the white robe they were. And as I came in the room, it was so sexy. I could see he had a huge cock, and it was sticking out of his, but whatever it was, and it was so horny. It's like a man coming in a room with a towel, and he's got a full erection, and you know you've got a, a nice bit of meat to chow down on. And so, yeah, anyway, but they they were much more physical, and they usually wanted, Doug and I would do twosomes, they wanted two of us, and the tips they gave were incredible, you know, and... But they were very small set. I mainly specialised in elderly public school gentlemen. A lot of them needed a bit of a spanking. But, hey, you know, spanking ain't that difficult, really, is it? So spanking, talking and dancing most of the time. There was one man I remember who, I mean, talk about the kinks and the differences we all have in how we achieve our own individual sexual pleasure his was that we'd have to pretend that the hotel was on fire and that I'd have to go almost have a panic attack and hysterical about the flames were coming and all the time he'd be jerking off and I'd be sort of screaming, I can't get out, where's the window, the fire's coming out. You know, thank God for individual people and individual kinks, you know, and, and I got paid for pretending I was in a fire. So these are some of the stories I just wanted to tell today of an old gentleman looking back on his first love and how he survived youth and how perhaps I've managed to survive some really terrible things later in life because I'm a long-term AIDS survivor. I've survived four cancers. But today I just wanted to talk about how I survived a rotten family, conquered the patriarchy and used it for my own thing found my first true love, had a wonderful coming out, and how I managed to put myself through university through prostitution. But it had to end. And then the other thing Doug Ian would do was he'd, we'd go into like Yves Saint Laurent and with my public school charm, I'd talk at the desk and he was loading up with gear. He'd come out loaded with gear. And I've still got a beautiful soft leather brown clutch bag that were all the rage in those days. But he got greedy, and then one day he sent me into Harrods with something he'd stolen to get a receipt, and it had been recorded. So I got arrested and was up before the beak. And the beak said, I can't understand why a nice young public school educated boy like you is here before me with this ragamuffin of a man who's in nothing but trouble in your life. I'm going to make sure that you get back to your studies and do what you did. Poor Dougie was sent down for three months and I got a caution and I thought, no, actually... It's time I stopped now. I'd had enough money. So I sort of broke my relationship with Dougie. And I did settle down somewhat to studying. But as soon as I stepped into that lecture hall, my eyes were everywhere looking for nice, tasty young bits of my age trade. And I sort of scar the rose with my gate. Oh, ding, ding, get that one. And I had a, a little hall of residence. I had a room, so I yanked them up there and then began my sort of heaven, you know, that kind of gay world. 
So those are some of my thoughts and stories today, Scott and listeners. And I hope you've enjoyed listening to an elder talking about being a younger and how my journey took me there and thus peace and love and pride. Let's go back to your dorm room. Uh, you, 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 you mentioned very offhand that you'd sucked dicks in the in the uh, in the dormitory, and was that a normal thing? Because it seems very stereotypical, and, and I assumed it was mostly cliche. No, it was rampant, Scott. There, there, there were twelve in our dorm, and there was one sort of virgin vestal heading for the monastery. He wouldn't play at all, but we had this code word, and someone would say, "My pen is full." which meant they had a hard on you. So <laughs> we'd go over and have mutual masturbation. And there was one boy who had the hugest dick. And if his pen was full, I was like a rat down a hole. I was over there. <laughs> there, wasn't, there wasn't as much anal intercourse, but there was an awful lot of oral and, and manual sex going on. There was some that had anal intercourse, but... It was mainly just mutual masturbation and a few like m- more precocious ones like me who knew how to give a good blowjob. Sounds great. It, well, <laughs> yeah. And my pen is full. I, I remember it to this day. You know, it's so coy. <laughs> I'd be waiting for the particular boy who I had a huge crush on to say it. I got out of my nighty quicker than I said, right down the roll, I was there. <laughs> There, now your pen isn't so full, is it? <laughs> so, yes, and there were lots of relationships like Scott's and mine going on. Lots of people did. And they weren't, as my story tells, Scott wasn't basically queer. So a lot of them, I think, might have been of that nature. But there was this one wonderful French man, much more sexually advanced than us. He came from a fabulously wealthy family in France and, again, had been sent to be finished off. And he was an outrageous out queen. Darling, who wants a cocksuck? We were all quite shocked by him, but... I felt wonderful. And and we had another friend called Habib who was from the Lebanon. And Habib had hashish. On Sundays, we could all go out for our walks. He said, darling, we all go up to the Downs and have a little party. And all the sort of jocks would get behind the shed with a bottle of cider and think they were being wonderful. We'd climb up in the Downs, roll up a spliff and get absolutely out of our eyes. And then we'd have a jerk-off session, circle jerk-off. And I remember... (laughs) Jungelson didn't understand it was in autumn about leaves. So when we all came, he picked up a handful of leaves to wipe himself clean. And there were holly leaves in it. Oh, <laughs> oh bless him, yes. So he was wiping his dick with holly leaves. He actually got beaten in public by the headmaster six times. He had six of the best and we all had to watch abuse because of his queerness. Because he'd run off, he'd called his chauffeur driver down and he'd actually come up to the West End and had a weekend in the bars, you know, and everything. And I remember him saying, oh, I had this black man and his huge penis and I put talcum powder on it and it looked so beautiful and then I sat on it. (laughs) And when he came back, he was reporting and just the horrid side of the patriarchy. He was dragged in, in front of us all and beaten. But as he said, there was a a disabled boy in our group 
and he'd put lots of tenner panties on. <laughs> he was sensible. But he said afterwards, I say, oh, that was really quite pleasing. I think I put that on my menu. <laughs> and I thought, yes, I love you. And wherever he is, I hope in the world still, he's still as bright and proud a gay man as he was then. There was lots of sexual activity going on. Thank goodness. Yeah. Was there a camaraderie between all of the working boys? Oh, absolutely, Scott. It was a hard little community. And we were small. There was only probably 20 of us. While the Dilly, there was hundreds. You know, we specialised in mainly public school, you know, so we could hold a conversation and we could be taken out. I used to wear Tommy Nutter suits and, you know, I was dressed to look the part and we'd be bought these wonderful clothes and that. Did you use a, a pseudonym? I, I didn't. No, I used George. I never felt ashamed or guilty about the work I did. You know, that's another thing. Shame and guilt are not even in my vocabulary. So I was George, but just a part of George, yeah. So, yes, there was a total camaraderie. We all looked out for each other. And the nine months I did it, I never heard of any violence or anyone getting into trouble. Of course, the Dilly was different. It was a much harder marketplace. And as I said, there were tales of abuse going on there. But no, 99% of these gentlemen, you know, they, they were very elderly in their 80s, maybe, you know what I mean? So... If they'd started to get naughty, they'd have got to, you know. <laughs> and there was a great community, yeah. And I'm a great lover of community in all its forms. And we were just a small, small community of a bigger sex worker community. It was less sex and more companionship. That sounds lovely. It was lovely because, as I said to you before, I learned things that I would never have really learned. I learned about their history and I learned about how it was for them being queer, that they'd lived in this world of always being worried about being imprisoned or being illegal because I was just on the cusp of it being not legal. So they, they would tell terrible tales of how they'd been blackmailed and treated by pretty police and all those stories and entrapped. So maybe people learning some of my history, I was learning their history, our queer history, which was little dark alleys. And, you know, the Rockingham was a little club that you'd knock three times to get into. There was no heavens and things like that. So I learned their stories. I'm smiling because, yes, it was not unpleasant work. And as I said, in, in nine months, I paid for university. And I was always dressing quite the latest design of things. And I dined wherever I want, you know. I'd never go near a McDonald's. It was up to Le Gavroche or something like that, you know. <laughs> you were a classy bitch. I was a classy bitch, still am. <laughs> <laughs> Have you been back to Half Moon Street? Do you know, I haven't. A few years later, when I was in the promiscuous scene, I used to go down there and there was a little cottage in Brick Street, it was called, that was full of the most gorgeous men when I was in my cottaging phase, which was different. You know, there was a little hole in the wall lab. Um, I used to visit there that was maybe 10 years later, but I kind of moved on from that and I think it had died out by then and I'm like Piccadilly I mean you would never I mean look at it now in the day it was sort of heaving with young guys you know so like everything it, it has its rhythm and moves on but no I, 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 I haven't actually been back let's go one day 
and we'll do a little action. You can be the old man. <laughs> can arrive in the rolls, and I'll get my school uniform out and my cane and give you six of the best, <laughs> Scott, dear, because you've been a naughty boy. <laughs> I'm a very naughty boy. <laughs> <laughs> so I've heard. To a younger queer, what, what would be some distilled wisdom from your long and varied life? I'd say learn your history. Learn about the history of our glorious community, one. Two, I'd say try and reform a sense of a contemporary community because the battles are not yet completely finished. Think of Chechnya, think of Russia. Become active, get down with your brothers and sisters and fight for the things that still need to be fought because we're still stigmatised, we're still killed, murdered, beaten. Don't deny that. Take some time to try and reform a sense of peoples of difference community because from my perspective, I don't feel it at the moment. Look after your sexual health. There's no excuse these days for poor sexual health. Make sure you get checked regularly and, and just... Be kind to yourself, the world, and each other. So, my little listeners, if any of you would like to get in touch with me about anything and have a little knit and attitude to chatter, which I like, I shall let you have my email address, which goes like this. H-O-D-S-O-N-G-4-5-3 at gmail.com. 